Hi, I'm Marcus Brotman, the creator of the Pingree Politics Podcast. We are dedicated to civil discussion and furthering political discussion in the Pingree community. If you are interested in our podcast, we are currently hosted by SoundCloud under the name Pingree Politics. In the future, we hope to expand to more popular platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. As the president of the Politics Club, I acknowledge political bias is unavoidable. Regardless, the Politics Club leaders and I will make all attempts to present objective facts to our audience and provide counterpoints to ensure that no view go unchallenged. To ensure a neutral perspective, we have students of opposing political views researching for each topic. If you'd like to share your views on the podcast or suggest a topic for us to discuss, please email me at mbrotman2021 at pingry.org. Thank you. All the best. On this episode of Pingree Politics, the other politics club leaders and I will discuss Mexican politics, economy, and society with Pingree alum Ricardo Volbrechthausen. But first, we will briefly introduce Mexico to those of you who are unknowledgeable in the subject. being said, we are excited to bring on our first guest of the podcast. Uh, his name is Ricardo, and he is quite the pedigree. Uh, Ricardo, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hi, Marcus. Yeah, sure. So I went to Pingree starting in sixth grade. And before that, I lived in Mexico. After that, I studied neuroscience at Columbia. And then I studied neuroscience and financial economics. From there, I was recruited to go to Goldman Sachs, where I worked on the principal funding and investing desk. And our major focus was investing in infrastructure projects using assets that a government or a company had as collateral for more bespoke structured credit deals. From there, I did an internship for two months at Alpha Venture Partners. That is a venture capital fund focused on funding later stage venture capital projects. And from there, I set off to start my own publishing company. So in September of 2017, I think it was, I moved back to Mexico so I guess, yeah, that's me. <laughs> awesome. So what drew you to Mexico in, in the first place? Obviously, you lived there when you were a child, but what brought you back? Mm -hmm. When I was working uh, at Goldman, the world as it is kind of now is divided between the very developed world. So Europe, the US, Japan, and very under, well, not emerging markets. Right. So Latin America, Africa and Asia. And as you noted, interest rates and growth in developed countries are kind of stagnant, despite the equities boom. And they have been stagnant for a while since the financial crisis. When I was looking at what I wanted to do, I'm like, well, going back to Mexico, I think there's a lot of potential opportunity because of the massively underserved rural markets. Right. If you look at the south of Mexico, like in particular Oaxaca or Chiapas or the Yucatan Peninsula, there's millions of people there. Right. It's a potentially giant market. But at the same time, very few companies are specifically targeting them. My theory is that a lot of these southern regions have large indigenous populations and they have a lot of trouble in school because the 
teachers that usually speak Spanish from bigger cities, and they're sent out into these rural populations to teach children. And what ends up happening is that the kids, they speak a local indigenous language. So they'll speak Maya or Tzeltal or Kekchi or Mam or I think 68 official languages and another 300 different variations of those languages. If you're able to publish books in their languages for their school system, A, it's a large market, and then B, you can actually make a difference in improving an individual's quality of life and also Mexican society at large. So I guess that's the elevator pitch. And then on a personal level, (laughs) I mean, living in Mexico is very different from living in the U.S. Like everything is much more chill. The food is great. I live about two hours from Cancun. So, I mean, I'm next to the beach. (laughs) It's really an amazing lifestyle. So I get to do what I like in a pretty awesome place. That's awesome. You mentioned how in these rural regions, there's these underserved communities, particularly you're noting, talking about education. Um, Do you think, like, I know this is super big perspective, and if you don't have an immediate answer on it, that's fine. Do you Mm -hmm. think the government is doing an adequate job in addressing those issues now? Yes and no. The problem is that, for example, the U.S. is a fairly large country, but it's a very homogenous population. I guess 100% of the U.S. speaks English, right? They all have access to highways. They all speak the same language. Culturally, they're all also very similar. So rolling out an educational system in the U.S. is significantly easier than it is in a country that has 68 plus different languages. And they're in very in somewhat more difficult to reach areas, right? So geographically, Mexico is very mountainous and there is jungle or desert. Sometimes getting to populations that are more marginalized is just physically difficult. And then once you get there, they don't even speak Spanish. So you have to come up with an entire education system for that specific language. Historically, Mexico has had a lot of trouble with the teachers' unions, Because Mexico is a centralized country, whereas the U.S. is a federation of states. The bureaucracy is a little bit more entrenched, so getting changes done is harder. Mexico is trying, but it faces a lot of obstacles. It's better than it was before, though. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, I guess this comparison is only partially true for the geographic reason. Look at the public schooling system in the United States as mm-hmm. the, like manifest destiny occurred. You know what I mean? It's like that system took a ridiculously long period of time to get to where it is today. Well, and even now, the the public school system, the private school system is a different story everywhere. But the public school system in the U.S. is also having trouble because, well, how do you adjust a curriculum to artificial intelligence and robotics? Even right now with the coronavirus how do you deal with having millions of children at home because they can't go to school? Training teachers is chaos because different teachers come from different backgrounds and then you have to get them on board to the same curriculum and standardization is always... It's just, even in the most optimal situation, which you could, I guess, say the US is, as one of the strongest countries on earth, it's still a difficult challenge. The diversity of Mexico is something that I did not foresee when I first started researching. I think it's important for our American viewers to know that there are so many differences between different parts of Mexico. If you go to Cancun, then you'll be in a tropical paradise. 
And if you go to one of the more rural regions like Jalisco or Guerrero, you're going to find yourself in a much different country, one which isn't able to take advantage of the same opportunities, which the more industrialized Mexican provinces are able to take advantage of, which plays into one of Mexico's key advantages, proximity to the United States, which is why NAFTA and the USMCA trade agreement were so important to them. To Americans, it seems like, oh, we need to close the border where that's the end of our issues with Mexico, whereas Mexico is highly reliant on the U.S. And to an extent, the U.S. is reliant on Mexican goods, but that can always be outsourced somewhere else. Yeah, there's a saying in Mexico that when the U.S. sneezes, Mexico collapses. (laughs) (laughs) More along those lines, because being the southern neighbor to the largest economy. The U.S. is a big focus of Mexican economic attention, especially on the northern border. Yeah, there's a certain reasoning of being like, yeah, okay, immigration is the most significant issue that Americans face when talking about Mexico. After researching their economy, I think Americans are not as willing to admit that we're at least partially reliant on Mexican goods. What happens to Mexico will certainly affect the United States, whether we're willing to admit that or not. And I think it's something that's kind of overlooked. Well, I agree, definitely. And in particular with, um, for example, automobiles, a massive amount of auto parts actually are manufactured or modified in Mexico before they end up in U.S. cars. And the U.S. agricultural industry is very dependent on seasonal migrants coming up from Mexico to work in planting and harvesting, and then going back to Mexico after the harvest's over. For example, right now with the coronavirus, the agricultural industry is very worried because if they're not able to get Mexican laborers across the border, they're worried that they'll probably have to rely on American workers which will be significantly more expensive than seasonal migration from Mexico. The dependence does go both ways. Mexico makes 40% of American car parts. America would not be able to snap their fingers and reroute all the supply chains in a day. Even the minor shifts in the USMCA agreement caused quite a lot of instability in the market. That was not a full shutdown. Those were tariffs. And yet we still see large ripples. I I just wanted to pivot back to education in underserved communities for a second. What's your opinion on the effect that the Zapatistas have had on promoting education and indigenous rights and all of those things? (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, First, before you start, who are the Zapatistas? Sure, sure. That is like the, that's an enormous question. Um, (laughs) You could spend probably, you could do a doctoral thesis on that. And it's a long story. Like, this is like a very long story. So the Zapatistas are, I think they're Tritalan. They're a Mayan rebel group that is semi-active now in the south of Mexico, in Chiapas, next to the border of Guatemala. And they were particularly active in 1994, actually right after NAFTA was signed originally. And... NAFTA in particular was very bad for Native American communities in Mexico because the Native American communities depend on agriculture, like subsistence agriculture. And when the NAFTA opened up exports of corn from 
of the industrialized heartland of the U.S. that has fertilizers and trucks and, I guess, now drones, the indigenous populations were outcompeted. So basically, NAFTA was a major driver of unemployment. And so what ended up happening is that a lot of these uh, indigenous, they rebelled in 1994, and they set up autonomous communes, or they're semi-communist. They're communist with like an indigenous twist, and they run their own show. They have their own communities, they have their own schools. They've been basically in rebellion since then. And you asked about education. Currently, the Zapatista region, I'm not entirely sure, because as I said, Mexico is very diverse, and the Chiapas region is way further south from where I live. My understanding is that they run their own schools in their own language. There are attempts to get the Mexican education system to those communities. And right now, AMLO, the Mexican president, has tried to reach out to do uh, reconciliation talks with these Mayan communities. <laughs> it's just it's just such a big question. We actually have a question from Diego. Is there a big difference in opinion on the Mexican government in rural areas versus these urban areas, which I think we got a hint of in what you said before, where it sounded like these rural regions were more disadvantaged by the NAFTA agreement. If you yeah, would care I mean, to elaborate on that. Sure. So I was talking with Marcus about this, I think yesterday or two days ago. When you have 90% of the population being either Native American or a mix of Native American and European, there's a tension in Mexico where the indigenous populations aren't exactly convinced of the legitimacy of the central government. Because historically, the Spanish conquest eliminated the old systems and they imposed the Spanish Empire. The Mexican government is kind of a descendant of that imperial system. So there's that. And then you also have a racial divide where the government and elite in Mexico tend to be overwhelmingly white, whereas the majority of the population is Native American or mixed. Oh, and for example, also different regions have historically not necessarily been part of Mexico. So, for example, there was an independence war quite recently where Mayan rebels have been trying to become independent from Mexico and start their own country. And this has been ongoing basically permanently. Different indigenous groups have always been trying to leave Mexico, usually to very tragic effects of like genocide and marginalization that's even worse than before. Like it's 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 a problem. <laughs> If you Google Mexico's war history, I think the majority of Mexican wars are against indigenous groups. And that is, that's in line with America's war history. If you look at America's wars, they're often not remembered in the history books, but we were basically fighting with Native American groups for the entirety of the 1800s. Yep. It's quite tragic. Um, yeah, a bit morbid. So I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer. Because it's not like there's been one Mexican state for 500 years. Mexico has had two monarchies. It's had three different republics. There's been some periods of anarchy. 
maybe something that would be interesting is that Mexico's political history doesn't follow a very neat trajectory the way the U.S.'s does. So like in the U.S., you have the pilgrims and the original colonists. You have the 13 colonies. They band together. They kick out the English. And then they go on this manifest destiny march towards California, basically pushing Native Americans further and further until they reach California. That's pretty much the entirety of U.S.'s, but it's kind of been very neat. I'm simplifying dramatically, right? Like, bear in mind, this is a super, super, super simplification. Mexico's political history, you start with, like, the Native American period, which is very different from the Native American period in North America, right? Because you have cities that had more people than cities in Europe. And when the Spaniards arrived, it's not like they kicked out the native population. They simply eliminated the top, right, the kings and the priests, and they just sat themselves on top. So that's why you still have that population distribution now. You have 10% that are white, that are majority in power, and you have the vast majority that is either native or mixed that are either peasants or workers or like just middle class generally. Yeah. And the Spanish colonial regime's effects cannot go understated. In books like uh, Why Nations Fail, the main theory is that the governments which set up extracting institutions are those that are unsuccessful, rather. The Spanish were still effectively in a semi-feudal society when they colonized the Americas. Definitely agree. Well, it was very feudal. (laughs) Whereas England colonized America... 200 years later, with much different ideals. So under that theory, you can say that a lot of Mexico's problems do stem from that original Spanish conquest. Instead of having a democracy as the starting point, you have a system where you had a monarch, right? So you had the first Mexican empire that failed, and then you had the first republic. From there, it just kind of spirals out of control. In Latin America, generally, or regions that were conquered by Spain and Portugal, there's a very large figure that is called a caudillo. In the U.S., you could kind of think of like George Washington kind of figure as a caudillo, where he's a landowner that takes kind of control politically and uses basically the land as his own fiefdom or a kingdom. But the thing is, with Washington and the 13 colonies, they set up a democracy from the get-go. Whereas in Mexico, different factions have basically been fighting for the last 500 years over that absolute power of the Spanish emperor. So you have the native tribes that they have their local power structure. You have the calillos, which can go from these local strongmen in like a town to regional warlords to dictators like uh, Porfirio Diaz, who became dictator of Mexico. And then you have landowners who are not particularly violent, like they're not caudillos, but they're still landowners. And when the Spanish emperor divided Mexico, he set them up as encomiendas. They were encomendado, a piece of land, and the encomendado basically owned all the land, all the people, all the resources, like the entire region was his. And that kind of mentality stays in like the modern political systems. When a governor is said, well, you're now the governor, it's like, well, this is now your state. So the the idea of the government being a servant of the people versus the government owning the people, 
has been a very difficult transition for Mexico. I know you have like industrialists, cartels, you have foreign interventions. It's, it's been chaos. And so Mexico is really only 50 years old as a country. Yeah. No, it's interesting to see how the very births of nations can have such huge effects on their future. If you look at America, George Washington said in his, his final address was uh, stay out of European politics. And it took over 100 years for America to actually get involved in, in European politics in World War I. And even then, it was a slow entrance and then a retraction. And so I think we can expect Mexico to have these problems on top of other factors which feed into them, like, as you said, the cartels and corruption that comes along with it. Yeah. So I think, Marcus, you wanted to pivot to um, talking about AMLO. Is that right? Yes. For those of you who don't know, AMLO is the current president of Mexico. It was a revolution of sorts. Some have described it because he won by a landslide victory in 2018. And there was a lot of media criticism. If you look at most American journalists from the New York Times to The Economist, you're going to see that they tend to have a pretty negative view of AMLO. And I think over the last two years, he's proven himself to not be as radical as he's been uh, painted to be. But I'd like to hear Ricardo's opinion on this. What do you? What are your views on AMLO? Sure. So we were talking about this earlier as well. Um, I am politically atheist, right? Like I don't really have a view one way or the other. So I guess like my answer can be in two parts. So like the first one is like maybe historical background. The magnitude of Amnos's victory can kind of make sense. So that's part one. And then part two, kind of look at the media coverage and why he's been covered the way he's been covered. Starting with the first part, Remember that I mentioned Porfirio Diaz? So that was in like the early 1900s. He was the dictator of Mexico. And he was like absolute dictator. And then there was the Mexican Revolution. Not independence from Spain. That happened a long time ago. There was a revolution. The group of generals that won that revolution, they formed a political party called El PRI. So the Partido Revolucionario Institucional. These generals, the rebel generals that now became legitimate generals, wanted to implement their political ideology into the new government. And they basically were essentially a one-party system up until the year 2000. Since 1920, all the way to 2000, it was one single party that was running the show in Mexico. In 2000 was the first president that was not from El PRI, so that was kind of the second political party that came onto the scene in Mexico. Originally, they were very centrist. They were very Christian. Now they're more right-wing, pro-business, free trade, small government. They're more, they're like a um, kind of version of the Republican Party. Uh, it's not a, a one-to-one comparison, but they're like that type of programming. I don't know. <laughs> and so the PAN was the first time that Mexico had a non-PRI president in almost 100 years. For AMLO to come along, he started his political party, I think only in 2006 or something. He started the political party kind of after dropping out of, I think it was the PRD, which is like another party. Mexico has four or five different political parties. He dropped out because he didn't agree 
with how Mexico's political parties are organized and how their policies are kind of extractive rather than contributive to Mexican society. He started his campaign and he was massively popular. He won the presidency, his party won the control of the Senate, the Cámara de Diputados, which is like the House of Republicans, the House of Representatives, sorry, and also a large number of governorships and mayorships. What's kind of interesting is that he's one of the first presidents that can be said to have a grab bag ideology. So, for example, he opposes the neoliberal big business of favoring external investors in favor of small businesses and indigenous communities. His view pivoted from being pro the top to being pro the bottom. So, for example, he opposed the privatization of Pemex, Mexico's oil company, because the oil in Mexico is owned by the government. It's a nationalized uh, resource. There was a big attempt to um, privatize oil so that companies rather than the government owned it. So he's, he's actively trying to stop that. And he's actively trying to stop the government from um, being as involved in industry. So like he wants to get the government out of business and focus the government on running programs for um, low and middle class Mexicans and indigenous regions. That's kind of like the historical context. 100 years of one party that was kind of overlord. It breaks with the pan and then AMLO kind of comes out of nowhere and tries to basically change up the whole system. So that's like part one of history of why AMLO's winning is significant. And then part two is he has been labeled populist, communist, socialist, basically any usually pejorative labels. And my recommendation is that if someone is calling names politically, usually it's because the person who's calling names has an agenda behind trying to delegitimize or undermine. And it's usually because they have a reason. With AMLO, the three main groups that he's antagonized are Mexican commercial interests, like the big industrialists who have factories that produce those car parts for export, or the tourism industry that is usually funded by external hotels who come to Cancun, who build these massive resorts. By pivoting the government away from favoring those large commercial interests, they lose money and support from the government, and so they cry wolf, basically. Mexican political interest groups, right? You had a, a old political establishment, and AMLO starts his own new political party, and he basically ousts hundreds and hundreds of politicians from the other parties. So those politicians obviously have a vested interest in um, delegitima- delegitimizing. I can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> delegitimizing. Delegitimizing AMLO. Because they're the opposing party, clearly, right? Like, it it would be difficult to find a Democrat who says something nice about Trump, and it would be very difficult to find someone in Trump's camp to say something nice about a Democrat. And it's not because they are, like, personally enemies. It's because it's in their political interest to, I don't know if they are enemies, or to at least pretend to be enemies, because that's how the political game works. And I I think it's important to note that it sounds very nice to say that we're going to fight the neoliberal establishment, all these large corporations, 
uh, need to be fought back. And yet the Mexican economy relies to an extent on foreign direct investment. Oh, I completely agree. So, I mean, I'm not arguing in favor or against his policies because I don't know how they're going to work out, right? Like sometimes a government's policies, you really only know what happened in hindsight, 30 years late, like World War II is really only starting to come into a consolidated view of what happened and its effects. Only later, right? You really don't know what's happening until it's happened and you have time to actually do research and figure out, okay, AMLO has this policy of pivoting state support and resources from big business towards indigenous and rural and small business. I don't know if that's the right thing. I don't know if it's the wrong thing. I'm not an economist. I really can't comment. But it is a break from what has been happening in Mexico and what has been happening hasn't been working. So he's attempting something new. And I don't know if it'll work. Um, I think it's certainly fair to say that it's hard to comment with any accuracy on the current time, on the present, especially mm -hmm. when we're still arguing about what happened in the past. Exactly. Or even, for example, Obama's legacy. Obama was just president recently. He led the U.S. starting from the financial crisis in 2008 through two presidencies to 2016. He's basically credited with the recovery and also the attempt to get Obamacare and to reform healthcare. Whether or not his legacy is a good one or a bad one, you really will only be able to tell in three or four more presidencies once the effects of his eight years have played out. And even then, it's difficult because his policies, Obama's policies, it's not like they were put in place. Let's see what happens. They're put in place, but then you have a next president and a next president and a next president. My point of view is that it's hard to judge a president by what he does when he does it. You can only really tell afterwards. Um, and with AMLO, the people who are calling him names are people that have a current vested interest in um, undermining him. And so I would just be wary of buying labels because the people who are selling labels have an interest in doing so. I would just focus more on the actual policies and research on how policies have worked historically and kind of step back from the politician and all the crap that comes with... Um, that's why I said that I'm politically atheist. Like, I don't care about individual politicians. I care about individual policies and how those policies are going to play out in 50 years. So I guess those are my two cents on AMLO. And <laughs> well, I think on that topic, we can move on to what is the most current of things happening, which is the coronavirus pandemic. It's obviously inescapable for us now. And will probably be so for the, for the foreseeable future. AMLO has drawn quite an amount of criticism for his current stance. He told everyone that nothing, everything was fine. He even went out in public to prove that it was fine. And now when the coronavirus is spreading to Mexico, he has to 
either backpedal or implement some sort of plan, but he has he's yet to do so. So I guess Mexico already had to deal with uh, H1N1, the swine flu, quite recently. And I guess for Mexico, it is much more difficult to shut down just pragmatically, right? How do you implement quarantines? But then also, there isn't a $2 trillion spending bill that Mexico can conjure because Mexico doesn't really control the world's money supply. So AMLO's response in minimizing comes from like the historical, I guess nothing happened with the swine flu. It just came and went and no one kind of remembers it. And then it's also kind of, he has limited tools at his disposal. That's certainly true. The informal economy makes it very difficult to... Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are very properly. poor. I mean, frankly, yeah. 50% live below the poverty line or some god ridiculous percentage of the population lives below the poverty line. So if you close down the economy, these people are not going to be able to eat. I mean, it's it's a much starker reality. And Mexico can't afford to feed everyone because it's just not within Mexico's means. So it's a difficult situation. No doubt. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, especially because some of the issues with the Mexican economy, and one of them was, oh, unemployment is 3.2%, but it could also be as high as like 25%. I think that that was 50. (laughs) You could throw out like a number and it's, and I think that's the issue. And you were talking about these rural regions. Like if you can't send adequate education to these rural regions, I don't know how you could control the spread (laughs) of virus in these rural regions if you can't even build like an effective schooling system. System there. Oh, well, forget about schooling system. There's regions that don't have electricity, don't have water, don't, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's, don't, don't have, have health care. Like, even the Catholic Church? Even, even the Catholic, Catholic Church, Church doesn't have, have enough priests. priests. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's really quite... Um, some, some areas, right? So Mexico, very diverse. There's very, very rich, very affluent areas. But then there's very, very poor. Like, Mexico has severe extremes. It's 137, I think you said, on the Gini coefficient. So some areas are going to be fine. Other areas are going to be decimated. As president, it's very difficult to form a coherent response when you're a new political party that has basically zero political support from any of the other factions, right? Because he's a new president that basically came out of nowhere. So it's it's very complicated, once more statistics come out, we'll have, I mean, we as in the world, we'll have a better idea of whether quarantines are like just right, if they're overkill, or if they are not enough and we need more severe measures. Right. Yeah, and again, it's one of those things where you're talking about, it's like you don't know the effects that a president has or any political body has until like years afterwards. So it's like easy to look at the coronavirus and be like, wow, this is devastating because it is it is that. It's going to be economically immediately devastating. <laughs> right. But like looking at it from the perspective of like, we don't know how bad it's could get or how like easily we can dodge the bullet here. And I think you're going to see that again, you know, decades down the line when adequate amount of information is taken we don't even know how bad it is right now we don't have the testing we don't have anything no yeah Yeah, we don't no i agree because there's basically two scenarios right like one scenario is um the vast majority of the population already has or has had coronavirus the cases that we're seeing right now are only the ones that require hospitalization and 
the 800,000 people that are infected are the ones that required hospitalization. The percentage of people that died are only from that population that was at risk, and it'll basically blow over. So that's like one scenario. Another scenario is that it's very severe. The 800,000 are the entire population of people that have been infected, and the death rate is 5 to 15%, depending on your age group and gender and various other risk factors. Like if you have immune compromise, if you have asthma, if you have whatever. So my opinion, I mean, I'm not a doctor, <laughs> is that if you look at the statistics that are coming out, for example, of the Princess Ocean Liner in Japan that was quarantined, yeah. the vast majority of people that get it seem to be asymptomatic. I think that it'll be leaning more towards the less severe case. But as a government who is formulating policy response, you have to take it seriously. I think that's true. Or at least give off the impression of taking it seriously. Exactly. No, and be prepared in case this is actually a severe issue. But we won't know until testing is done. Which could take years. Uh, well, frankly, I, I think the world is beyond testing at this point because I think it's spread too far. So I think the quarantines are an appropriate response. At this point, I think the question should even be raised over whether it's prudent to get millions of tests ready. For in America, that would mean being able to test basically everyone eventually. Yeah. But by so the time the tests are ready, the problem will already kind of be on its way out. Exactly. Or there are theories that we're going to have a seasonal thing. Mm. And at that point, Sure, we need the testing, but then we'll have plenty of time. Yeah. I mean, and if you compare the coronavirus to the flu, for example, I mean, the flu kills an insane amount of people. Between 400,000 to 600,000 people die every year from the flu. And that's a seasonal thing. So I, more so than the coronavirus or not the coronavirus, I think this should be highlighting the flu. <laughs> or malaria, or dengue, or like these seasonal recurring viruses that we could theoretically deal with, but haven't because we're not aware of them as strongly as coronavirus that has been kind of blared through the media system for the last three months. Because if you started a panic over the flu, there would be a panic. I mean, 600,000 people dying every year is very significant. That's true. I think that this comes into how the public perceives threats you know when you see jaws you become very scared of shark attacks and yet sharks make such a minor proportion of the deaths in america it's basically not even worth worrying about <laughs> their their representation on screen is there should be a single shark attack movie <laughs> yeah there should be about as many vending machine attack movies i think that's the statistic actually we could talk a bit about how actually El Salvador has had a much more generous, if the, if that's the right term, uh, policy on coronavirus. They have basically shut down their entire country in a way that Mexico has certainly not even come close to doing. Yeah, but I'd imagine that that again ties into that idea that is it even in their best interest to address the virus so aggressively that it might be to the, the severe detriment of rural communities. 
I mean, I think in the United States, we're able to bite the bullet and do the right thing of being like, okay, well, this is how we should address the virus and be like really a gung-ho about how we address it because that's probably what should be done about it. But I don't know if Mexico is like financially capable of doing that. Yeah. I mean, also keeping in mind, El Salvador is an absolutely tiny country, right? Like El Salvador has 21,000 square kilometers. It has only 6 million people. It doesn't really depend as much on external maquiladoras that export or tourists because like tourists don't go to El Salvador and there aren't these massive factories that are going to get shut down. So El Salvador, by being a smaller, poorer country than Mexico, in this instance, is ironically better able to just shut down its borders because the impact of shutting down those borders is, I, I wouldn't say trivial, but it's much less damaging. That's that's certainly true. Because I definitely agree that Mexico's size makes it unwieldy for one-size-fits-all solutions, which is kind of seen in the U.S., where New York and New Jersey and California were shutting down much quicker because that's where the coronavirus had become serious. Whereas in Ohio, they don't need to close down jobs yet. Well, and also there's almost 40 million people in California and in the metropolitan area. It's high and there's also significant traffic through these areas, right? Like if you shut down in Salvador, it won't have an impact on the economy of India, for example. If you shut down California, you're pushing the world into a recession. And I think Mexico is already uh, starting to slip into recession. Uh, oh, yeah. In the end of 2019. Definitely. And so it, its economic health is definitely going to be impacted no matter what the government does. I think it, it was predicted to be about 2% retraction in all of Latin America. And that was the baseline. It's only down from here. A Brazilian-led uh, estimate put the Latin American retraction at about 5 to 6% based on the uh, coronavirus outbreak. Yeah. Though it's important to note that Mexico has weathered economic troubles much better than its Latin American counterparts have um, compared to Brazil and Colombia. In the last few years, Mexico has been able to grow more effectively. And I think a part of that is their trade position with the U.S. Completely agree. Having the U.S. as kind of a backstop helps because the U.S. usually recovers first and pulls Mexico along with it. Whereas the rest of Latin America flails around even more. And the political instability that we see in Mexico that was able to allow AMLO into the presidency is almost a non-issue when compared to the political crises that we see in Venezuela and Colombia and Chile. And Argentina and Ecuador yeah. oh, and, and Bolivia. Bolivia. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to find a Latin American country that doesn't have political instability. I think Peru's Congress recently had to flee the capital because they tried, I think, to raise gas prices and that caused riots and they shut down Quito and... No, yeah, there was massive riots there. I, I actually remember hearing about this because, uh, again, somebody that actually my dad works with uh, is, is from there or has family from there. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And he was like, this, the rioting there was like insane because of the yeah, yeah. gas prices. And it's like, it man, very bad. yeah, exactly. And that political instability, I think, is you can talk about like why it exists and that's in a completely different can of worms 
that we I, I don't think we have enough time for. But I think it's mm-hmm. emblematic of I guess any country that's going to go through the, those type of I guess economic growing pains, if you will. Mm-hmm. That it's such there's like this invariable economic difference between certain regions and other regions. It's, and Mexico is an example of that, but it's an example that's probably on the better end of the development stage. We do see some success stories, those in the Philippines or in Taiwan, where their economic growth doesn't seem to be hindered by the same levels of corruption and instability. And yet a lot of these countries, South Korea in its early days, for example, were very authoritarian and had very little economic growth until they were able to embrace a more free market approach. But it seems that whenever those kind of approaches are tried, you invariably end up with a lot of corruption and mismanagement. Yeah, setting up democracies is not easy. (laughs) I think America has found that in the Middle East to be completely true. Exactly. The right economic factors have to be in place. The right social factors have to be in place. The right political factors have to be in place. And And even the right people have to be in place. If you look at even just America's history, George Washington could have said, you know what, I want to be a king. He could have. And yeah, he could have. And that's the entire American Republic destroyed. Or even... Well, it wouldn't have have been born. (laughs) It wouldn't have, yeah, it wouldn't have existed in the first place. Or you could look at, let's say, what happens if Abraham Lincoln says, you know what, screw the Union. They can have their slaves and we will be Mm -hmm. a better North. Could have happened. All right. Well, so I think that starts to get to the end of our topic. We kind of got off topic there, but I, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, the uh, podcasts almost always end up um, doing <laughs> circles. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but I mean, and I think that's the nature of talking about something like this. You know, what that's I mean? true. everything's just so interconnected. Yeah, and of course, I can cut out all the little ums and ahs. As <laughs> as there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. Um, does anyone want to do a, like a conclusion for the podcast? Try to sum everything that we just talked about up in like ten seconds. Seconds. <laughs> um, I guess I'll give it a shot. Uh, the situation in Mexico is an incredibly complex one with issues of corruption and crime, but also ones of just deeply rooted cultural differences within the country. But these issues are being dealt with slowly but surely. And yeah, as history marches on, we will have even more time to look back and uh, analyze the situation. Right. Uh, I think that's going to be a recurring theme on this podcast is the (laughs) sheer complexity of these topics. Depending on who you ask and what you look up, what website you go on, you're going to get so many different answers. Right. Um, Thank you all for listening. And thanks uh, so much to Ricardo for coming on. Yeah, oh, thank course. you so much. Seriously, that was great. great. That was great. <laughs> no worries. I hope I was able to add some um, background and context. <laughs> yeah, it was incredibly useful. I we all really appreciate it. Yeah. No worries. Once again, I'd like to thank Ricardo for coming onto the podcast. It was great to have him on. I'd also like to thank the other Politics Club leaders, Micah and Sean, for researching on this episode. I'd also like to thank Max Brotman for composing the introduction and Miss Davlin for being our politics club advisor.